It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence and suicidal ideation that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Conrad Roy Jr. relaxed on his front porch, enjoying the summer afternoon. He idly checked his phone to see if his son, Conrad III, had called. The teen hadn't come home the night before, but his father wasn't worried yet. There could be a million reasons an 18-year-old boy might stay away from home for a while. He was a good kid and probably hadn't gotten up to too much trouble. But Conrad Jr.'s calm wouldn't last much longer. A family friend dropped by with an unsettled expression. They said they'd seen a black truck parked over at the Fairhaven Kmart. It was surrounded by yellow police tape. Conrad Jr.'s stomach twisted into a knot. His son drove a black truck. Conrad Jr. jumped in his car and raced to the Kmart. He couldn't hold a thought or even a prayer inside his mind. When he pulled into the parking lot, his worst fears were confirmed. It was his son's truck all right, surrounded by police officers. Conrad Jr. looked at their grim faces, their downcast eyes. He froze, feeling a swell of anguish rise in him, like nothing he had ever experienced before. He knew, without a doubt, that something horrible had happened to his son. Hi. I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a ParCast original. The legal definition of a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim, or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Crimes of Passion for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Crimes of Passion in the search bar. At Parcast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. Last week, 
we discussed how Massachusetts teenagers, Conrad Roy and Michelle Carter began an online relationship in 2012. Over the course of the next two years, through thousands of texts and social media messages, Conrad confided in Michelle about his struggles with depression and suicidal ideation. Although Michelle initially seemed eager to help Conrad get better, in July of 2014, her reaction changed. She began actively encouraging Conrad to go through with suicide. This week, we'll discuss Michelle and Conrad's last conversation, the tragic death that resulted, and the criminal charges that ensued. On July 12, 2014, 18-year-old Conrad Roy prepared to die. He obtained a portable generator, which emitted carbon monoxide, intending to poison himself by inhaling it. He was going to park his truck in an empty lot and allow the generator to run until he couldn't breathe anymore. Though everything was in place, Conrad seemed to have second thoughts on the morning of the 12th. He texted his girlfriend, Michelle, telling her that he was feeling hesitant. She told him that he was overthinking it, texting, you just need to do it, Conrad. Conrad was worried about his family. He didn't want to hurt them. Michelle dismissed these concerns. She told him his family would get through it. She promised that she would be there to help them grieve. While Conrad mulled this over, he decided to go to the beach in Westport, Massachusetts with his mother and sisters. That day, Conrad's mother, Lynn, never suspected he was considering suicide. She knew he'd seemed depressed lately, but as they walked along the shore, she and Conrad joked about the bathing suits they saw. They discussed his scholarship to Fitchburg State University. Conrad took his sisters out for ice cream. Lynn later said, I thought he was doing great. Before I continue with Conrad's psychology, please note that I am not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. According to the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, one of the warning signs of suicide is a sudden improvement in mood. Medical News Today has reported that this mood shift may occur because the afflicted individual feels relief that they've come to a decision. Conrad perhaps seemed calmer and more relaxed to his family because he felt glad in the moment that he was nearing the end. The looming decision hadn't been made. Even as Conrad spent the day with his family, he continued to text Michelle for most of that afternoon. Conrad told Michelle that he felt worried and stressed, but he was still committed to going through with his plan. Around 6 o'clock p.m., Conrad told his mother he was going out to visit his friend, Ariana. She asked if he'd be home for dinner. He told her that he didn't think so. He also texted Michelle to tell her that he was leaving. Conrad drove to a Kmart parking lot in Fairhaven, Massachusetts. He sat in his truck as it slowly filled with carbon monoxide. Just before 6.30, he called Michelle and they spoke for 43 minutes before disconnecting. At 7.12 p.m., Michelle called him back. 
She was on the phone with him for another 47 minutes until Conrad's cell phone ran out of batteries. There are no recordings of these phone calls and it's not clear what they talked about. But later, Michelle would confess to her friend that at one point, Conrad got scared and left the truck to get some fresh air. Michelle told him to get back inside. Conrad listened to her. He got back in the truck, then remained there until he died. When they hung up at around 8 p.m., Michelle immediately texted two friends and told them she was afraid Conrad had killed himself. She neglected to mention that she'd been in on his plan or that she had encouraged him to do it. Afterward, Michelle tried calling Conrad again. The call went straight to voicemail. She continued to call him more than 20 times and received no response. She texted him asking if he was okay. After months of Conrad's suicidal talk, she seemed unconvinced that he might actually be dead. Eventually, Michelle tried texting Conrad's sister Camden, asking if she knew where Conrad was. Camden assumed that Conrad was at their father's house and Michelle apparently believed her. She immediately texted Conrad, I thought you actually did it. She also told him that since he hadn't gone through with suicide, maybe it was time for him to finally get help. Of course, Conrad didn't respond. The next morning, July 13th, when Conrad didn't return home, his mother reported him missing to the police and his family went out looking for him. That afternoon, police discovered Conrad's truck parked in the Kmart with his body inside. They also found his phone sitting next to him. Although Conrad's death was not at that time considered suspicious, police decided to confiscate his phone. They thought it might give them answers as to why Conrad had taken his own life. In the meantime, Conrad's family grieved his loss. On July 19th, they held his funeral, which Michelle attended. Some of the family members recalled that she acted oddly, asking Conrad's sisters for some of his belongings and even requesting to keep some of his ashes. Conrad's friend Ariana said, she sat up close to where the family area was. I always described her scene as the grieving widow. She was constantly sobbing. She made a scene. <laughs> that evening after the funeral, Michelle texted Conrad's phone. It made her feel better to text him, even though she knew he couldn't answer. In these texts, she seemed to have regrets. She wrote that she was sorry she had let him commit suicide. She wished she had done something to stop him. Michelle continued to text Conrad's phone on a near daily basis for the rest of the summer. Over the next few weeks, Michelle also kept in regular contact with Conrad's family. In several text messages, she attempted to comfort Conrad's mother, Lynn. She reassured Lynn that Conrad's death wasn't her fault and that there was nothing anybody could have done to change his mind. Then, shortly after Conrad's funeral, Lynn mentioned that the police had taken Conrad's phone. That might be when Michelle started to worry. Would she be in danger if the police saw her messages to Conrad? Could she go to jail? 
The thought was terrifying, but it's possible Michelle found herself worrying even more about what Conrad's family would say. She'd promised Conrad she would be there for his mother and sisters after he was gone, and she was true to her word. She liked to think of herself as their rock. She was being helpful, loyal, and supportive. Everyone could see that now, but if those texts got out, everything would change. Conrad's family might hate her. Everyone would hate her. Michelle did her best to put the police investigation out of her mind for the moment. In late June, she told Conrad's mother that she wanted to organize an event to help raise money for mental health and suicide awareness. The event would be held in Conrad's honor, but it would also put the spotlight right on Michelle. This attention seemed to be what she craved, but it would soon come back to haunt her. Up next, police begin to suspect foul play as they continue their investigation into Conrad's death. Now, back to the story. On July 13, 2014, police discovered the body of 18-year-old Conrad Roy III in the cab of his truck. He died by suicide after breathing in a lethal amount of carbon monoxide. A few people knew that he was having suicidal thoughts. However, he had shared his plans with his girlfriend, 17-year-old Michelle Carter. In the week before his death, she had encouraged, even badgered him into going through with the act. After he died, Michelle acted heartbroken, telling friends and family how devastated she was and how much she loved him. She posted a number of messages on social media about his death beginning on the same day he died. That night, she tweeted, Such a beautiful soul gone too soon. I'll always remember your bright light and smile. You'll forever be in my heart. I love you, Conrad. Many would later speculate that Michelle enjoyed the attention she got from playing the role of the grieving girlfriend. Although all human beings need attention, for some people, it can become a compulsion. Neuroscientist Billy Gordon wrote that some people crave drama in their lives because, as he put it, drama gets attention. Drama causes the pituitary gland and hypothalamus to secrete endorphins, which suppress pain and induce pleasure. Because of this, some people can become addicted to drama in the same way they become addicted to opiates. Gordon says, like any addiction, you build up a tolerance that continuously requires more to get the same neurochemical effect. In the case of drama, you need more and more crises to get the same thrill. For years, Michelle had struggled with an eating disorder and self-harming habits, which she confided to her friends. Conrad's death gave her an even more dramatic basis for gaining their sympathy. Late in the summer of 2014, Michelle organized a charity softball game called Homers for Conrad. Some of Conrad's friends found it strange that she chose to host it in her hometown of Plainville, nearly an hour away from Conrad's family and the Mattapoisett area. When one friend, Tom, questioned Michelle about it, she claimed the event would be too difficult to organize if she held it outside of Plainville. Tom offered to organize it himself and she snapped at him, 
It has to be here. This was my idea. The game was held on September 13, 2014, the day after what would have been Conrad's 19th birthday. Michelle enlisted her friends and family to participate. She was thrilled with the turnout, boasting later that they had raised over $2,300. It wasn't just the money Michelle was happy about. The event made her feel important. She liked the fact that people saw her as an advocate for mental illness. Michelle later claimed that a suicidal girl had seen the Facebook announcement for Homers for Conrad and had reached out to Michelle for support. She bragged, I helped her and she said I saved her life. Michelle's friends heaped praise on her following the softball game, calling her brave and amazing for working so hard to raise awareness. One friend texted, Conrad is 100% proud of you. Everyone is. But public opinion of Michelle would soon change. By that fall, police had reviewed the contents of Conrad's phone. He had deleted nearly all of his texts, except for a single thread going back to the week before his death between him and Michelle Carter. Police saw the multiple messages encouraging Conrad to commit suicide. They realized they might have a criminal case on their hands. On October 2nd, 2014, police went to Michelle's high school to question her. During the interrogation, she told them that she had been speaking with Conrad on the phone the night he died. She said, We were talking and then the phone hung up, but I didn't really think anything of it. Her text would reveal a different story. Police had arrived ready with a search warrant, granting them permission to take Michelle's phone. Michelle seemed reluctant to hand it over, asking the police if she would get it back. They told her they'd return it, eventually. Searching the phone, Michelle's messages only cemented the theory that she had played a role in Conrad's death. Four months later, on February 4, 2015, a Bristol County grand jury indicted Michelle Carter on charges of involuntary manslaughter. Although she was 17 at the time of Carter's death, she was charged as a youthful offender rather than a juvenile. Youthful offender is a category reserved for minors between the ages of 14 and 17 who commit a crime involving serious bodily harm. While juvenile offenders don't serve sentences beyond their 18th birthday, youthful offenders could face the same maximum penalties as an adult. Michelle's manslaughter charge carried a potential sentence of 20 years in prison. She was arraigned the following day and released on a $2,500 cash bail. The indictment was made public on Thursday, February 26th, and the media immediately latched onto the story. Reports of Michelle's text messages appeared in newspapers around the country. Conrad's family was shocked. His aunt later said, it was almost the same feeling as finding out that he died. Once the case started making headlines, even those closest to Michelle were appalled. One student interviewed at Michelle's high school said, a lot of people who think she's guilty are disgusted with her. On social media and internet forums, users called Michelle manipulative, evil, and a psychopath. Many were particularly outraged when Facebook pictures surfaced showing Michelle at her senior prom. 
hanging out with friends and taking a trip to Disneyland after her indictment. While she awaited trial, Michelle was banned from using social media, but her mother had posted these pictures on her own account. Several media outlets characterized the post as callous. Conrad's aunt commented on the situation. It just doesn't feel like she's grieving, and that's really confusing for us. In any case, negative public opinion would not be enough for the prosecutors attempting to convict her. In order to prove involuntary manslaughter, they would have to show that Michelle had committed reckless or wanton behavior that resulted in Conrad's death. Involuntary manslaughter is a charge often applied to actual physical acts which cause harm to the victim. But in this case, Michelle wasn't present for Conrad's death. She had been home at the time, almost 50 miles away. The prosecutors were arguing a novel legal case and they knew it would be an uphill battle. The case also gave rise to constitutional concerns. Legal experts were divided on whether the district attorney's office violated Michelle Carter's First Amendment rights by prosecuting her. In an article for Cosmopolitan, author and attorney Jill Filipovich summarized the problem facing the district attorneys. Filipovich wrote, even as Carter seems like a young woman without a moral compass, a depraved and cruel person who acted appallingly and should find herself legally penalized for something, manslaughter seems to be a step too far. Holding someone legally responsible for another suicide criminalizes speech that, while bad, should not be illegal. Michelle's lawyer, Joseph Cataldo, felt the same way. In August of 2015, Cataldo filed a motion asking the court to dismiss the indictment or, alternatively, charge her as a juvenile rather than a youthful offender. However, the judge rejected his motion. Cataldo appealed to the state Supreme Judicial Court. Months went by as Michelle waited for their decision. Prosecutors were concerned about the delay. If the Supreme Judicial Court required Michelle to be tried as a juvenile, they would only have a few months until her 20th birthday to bring a case against her. But on July 1st, 2016, just a month before Michelle's 20th birthday, the court issued their decision. They upheld the district attorney's indictment of Michelle as a youthful offender. Not only would she have to stand trial for Conrad's death, but she'd potentially face the full 20-year adult sentence if convicted. Michelle was reportedly bewildered by the manslaughter charges. Her lawyer said that she couldn't understand why she was being prosecuted. Nevertheless, she would soon have to defend herself in court. Coming up, Michelle Carter goes to trial. Now, back to the story. More than two years after 18-year-old Conrad Roy died by suicide, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts moved forward in their criminal trial against his girlfriend, the now 20-year-old Michelle Carter. The prosecution argued that Michelle's text messages encouraging Conrad to commit suicide constituted reckless or wanton conduct that caused Conrad's death. But they had to overcome the argument that they were violating Michelle's First Amendment rights to free speech. 
The case sparked criticism from First Amendment groups like the American Civil Liberties Union of Massachusetts. But the defense had their own uphill battle, given Michelle's unlikability. Michelle's attorneys rooted their defense in Michelle's previous mental health struggles. In March of 2017, they hired psychiatrist Dr. Peter Bregan to testify as an expert witness. Dr. Bregan has faced criticism for decades for his opinions on psychiatric medicine. In 1987, he went before a medical disciplinary board after he appeared on The Oprah Winfrey Show and suggested that psychiatric patients should refuse to take their medication. The complaint against him was ultimately dismissed, but many of Dr. Bregan's colleagues felt that his recommendations amounted to malpractice. Since the mid-1980s, Dr. Bregan had made around 90 appearances in court as an expert witness. In the Michelle Carter case, prosecutors tried to bar the psychiatrist from testifying. They pointed to the fact that in prior cases in 1995 and 1997, judges had ruled to exclude his testimony. A judge from one of those cases wrote that Dr. Bregan's opinion was totally without credibility and called him a fraud. But ultimately, in the Michelle Carter trial, the judge would allow him to testify. On Monday, June 5th, Michelle waived her right to a jury trial. She instead asked for the decision to be made solely by the judge. Michelle's attorney probably felt that a judge would be more likely to base his decision only on the law, while a jury might be more moved by emotions and moral considerations. Over the course of the next week, Conrad's family, as well as friends of Michelle's, testified on behalf of the prosecution. They described her as a lonely girl who was desperate for approval. The prosecutor argued that she manipulated and bullied Conrad into killing himself to win attention for herself. This strategy did draw some criticism. Some said that the prosecution was appealing to sexist tropes to secure conviction. Amanda Knox, who spent four years in prison for the murder of her roommate before she was acquitted, wrote an op-ed in the Los Angeles Times in support of Michelle. She called attention to the way the media had turned Michelle into a cold-hearted femme fatale, just as it had done with her. She added, We want to assign agency whenever something bad happens, but in doing so, we discredit Conrad Roy's agency, which included his choice to get back in the truck. Michelle's lawyers also tried to refute the idea of Michelle's culpability. They presented evidence of Conrad's long history of depression and his rocky relationship with his father to take some of the blame away from Michelle. On Monday, June 12th, psychiatrist Peter Bregan also testified that Michelle was negatively affected by her medication, Prozac and Celexa. He argued that these drugs caused involuntary intoxication this drug state, Bregan said, affected Michelle's front lobe function, which controls empathy and decision-making. Bregan said that the drugs made her psychotic, delusional, and disturbed. He believed the medication tricked her into believing that Conrad's death would be a good thing. In cross-examination, prosecutors pointed out that involuntary intoxication is a legal defense, not a medical diagnosis. In a letter published in the Boston Globe, 
Psychiatrist Dr. Susan Donaldson called the testimony questionable and wrote, Dr. Bregan is a controversial figure who is loudly critical of biological treatments of psychiatric illness, dismissing decades of studies and clinical experience. Few psychiatrists would endorse the statement he made. In the end, Dr. Bregan's testimony didn't seem to help Michelle's defense. On Friday, July 16, 2017, Judge Lawrence Moniz found Michelle guilty of manslaughter. While issuing his ruling, Judge Moniz said that the text Michelle sent in the weeks prior to Conrad's death did not cause his suicide. If she had left it there, she would not have been found guilty. But when Conrad got out of the car and Michelle ordered him back inside and then failed to call for help, her actions and also her failure to act where she had a self-created duty to because she had put him into that toxic environment constituted wanton and reckless conduct. Michelle's face crumpled as she listened to the verdict. She couldn't believe this was happening to her. Even worse, around her, people were celebrating. They were glad to see her punished. She didn't understand it. None of them really knew Conrad, not the way she did. Michelle felt her lawyer put his hand on her shoulder. He began to lead her out of the courtroom. Michelle ignored the cameras, microphones, and journalists in her path as she hurried away. She tried to picture her future in a jail cell, but she couldn't. This wasn't supposed to happen. Her love story, epic, romantic, tragic, wasn't supposed to end this way. On August 3rd, 2017, Michelle returned to court for sentencing. Conrad Roy's family hoped she'd get the maximum penalty of 20 years. The prosecutors were asking for seven to 12. Instead, the judge sentenced Michelle to two and a half years in the Bristol County House of Correction. But Michelle would ultimately only serve 15 months. The rest would be suspended. Judge Moniz favored a lenient sentence because he felt that Michelle's young age offered a greater chance of rehabilitation. In addition, Michelle wasn't required to go to prison right away. She and her lawyer had decided to appeal her conviction, and she was allowed to stay at home while her appeal worked its way through the courts. The Roy and Carter families remained in limbo while they awaited the outcome. Michelle couldn't make any public statements out of fear that it might jeopardize her appeal. All she could do was anxiously await a ruling on her fate. Finally, in early February of 2019, after a year and a half, the Massachusetts Judicial Supreme Court issued its decision, rejecting Michelle's appeal and upholding her conviction. Conrad's family was relieved to hear that Michelle would finally face justice more than four and a half years after his death. Conrad's aunt Janice reportedly said, it will be a good end, a kind of closure. On February 11th, 2019, 22-year-old Michelle Carter was escorted to the Bristol County Correctional Facility where she would serve out her term. In prison, Michelle got a job in the kitchen as a server she enrolled in the facility's educational programs, taking courses in engine repair, spreadsheet design, and civics. She also joined a book club. 
Prison officials described her as reserved and quiet. After her case had become a media spectacle, she didn't seem to want any extra attention. Even so, the case didn't quite fade from the spotlight. Scholars and writers were eager to explore the issues of online bullying, technology, and free speech raised by Conrad's death. In July of 2019, HBO released a two-part documentary entitled, I Love You, Now Die, The Commonwealth versus Michelle Carter. The film explored Michelle and Conrad's relationship and the resulting trial. Michelle declined to participate, but many members of Conrad's family sat for interviews. In The Atlantic's review of the documentary, writer Sophie Gilbert talked about the cultural significance of the case, saying, it's messy in a way that indicts Carter less than the culture she was raised in, one where doctors prescribe drugs to teenagers without a real sense of their impact on developing brains and where digital technology has become ubiquitous so quickly that ethical frameworks surrounding its usage haven't had time to catch up. Meanwhile, the Massachusetts legislature was working to rectify some of the legal gaps brought to light by the case. On July 24, 2019, the state legislature filed a bill entitled Conrad's Law. Under the new regulations, coercing someone into committing or attempting suicide could be punished by up to five years in prison. In November of 2019, Conrad's mother, Lynn, testified in front of the Massachusetts Legislature's Judiciary Committee in support of the bill. She said, truth be told, if this law existed, my son's case would have been settled more easily. Michelle Carter was released on Thursday, January 23, 2020, three months short of her 15-month sentence. Her release came early due to good behavior. A spokesman for the Bristol County Sheriff's Office said, while she was here, we had no problems with her, no fights, no gangs, nothing like that. She was polite to our staff, our volunteers, and she was in a lot of programs I guess the best way to say it is she was sort of a model inmate here in Bristol County. Michelle's parents picked her up from the Bristol County House of Corrections around 9.30 in the morning. The 23-year-old emerged from prison looking tired and somber. She kept her head down as she walked. When she got inside her parents' car, she lay her head down against her mother's shoulder. Several reporters waited outside the jail to watch her release, but Michelle made no comment as they drove away. After being convicted for the impact of her words, Michelle Carter now seemed to feel that silence was her best option. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion, we will be back Wednesday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Crimes of Passion for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Crimes of Passion on Spotify, just open the app and type Crimes of Passion in the search bar. 
And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Christina Pamies, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Lainey Hobbs. Remember, you can hear more tales of love, heartbreak, theft, and murder by following Crimes of Passion on Spotify. New episodes premiere every Wednesday. Listen free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts.